There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following is an ad for The Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project, launched today and formed by several of Trump's fiercest conservative critics, has already raised over a million dollars in its pursuit to defeat Donald Trump. Announced the creation of the Lincoln Project, including George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, Mike Madrid, Jennifer Horn, Reed Galen, Ron Steslow, Rick Wilson. The Republicans who never shied away from criticizing President Trump formed a political action committee. The PAC's mission is, quote, we are Republicans and we want Trump defeated. Over these next 11 months, our efforts will be dedicated to defeating President Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. Mr. Trump and his enablers have abandoned conservative and long-standing Republican principles and replaced it with Trumpism, empty faith, they call it, led by a bogus prophet. And to elect those patriots who will hold the line. A group called the Lincoln Project who just released this video. Oof, that is The sad. Lincoln Project recently yeah. launched that ad. A group plans to purchase television and digital ads in several battleground states. And Trumpism requires a total lack of shame to go into the swing states where the race will be decided in 2020. The Lincoln Project is about defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. Paid for by the Lincoln Project, which is responsible for the content of this advertising. Not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. www.lincolnproject.us. The Lincoln Project needs your help to defend the integrity of the Constitution and defeat Trump and Trumpism. Sign up now at thelincolnproject.us. It's January 29th, 2020. On the eighth day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump, senators get their chance to ask questions of the House managers and the president's defense team. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Senators have sat quietly in the Senate chamber for the last six days as the parties, the House managers on the one hand and the president's defense team on the other, made their best arguments. In today's episode, senators pass their written questions to either the House managers or the president's defense team to Chief Justice John Roberts, who reads them aloud. This is the first day of up to 16 hours the House managers and the president's team will have to answer those written questions. This is the impeachment, episode eight. The parties respond to senators' written questions. Hurry, hurry, hurry. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment, while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the Articles of Impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. The majority leader is recognized. Today, the Senate will conduct up to eight hours of questions to the parties delivered in writing to the Chief Justice. As a reminder, the two sides will alternate and answers should be kept to five minutes or less. The majority side will lead off with a question from the Senator from Maine. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator is recognized. I send a question to the desk. On behalf of myself, 
Senator Murkowski and Senator Romney. This is a question for the counsel for the president. If President Trump had more than one motive for his alleged conduct, such as the pursuit of personal political advantage, rooting out corruption, and the promotion of national interests, how should the Senate consider more than one motive in its assessment of Article One? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, um, in response to that question, um, there are really two layers to my answer. In response to that question, um, there are really two layers to my answer, because I'd like to point out first that even if there was only one motive, the uh, theory of abuse of power that the House managers have presented, that subjective motive alone can become the basis for an impeachable offense, we believe is constitutionally defective. It is not a permissible way to frame a claim of an impeachable offense under the Constitution. So, but I'll put that to one side and address the question of mixed motive. If there were a motive that was a public interest but also some personal interest, we think it follows even more clearly that that cannot possibly be the basis for an impeachable offense. And even the House managers, as they have framed their case, they have explained, and this is pointed out in our trial memorandum, uh, that in the House Judiciary Committee report, they specify that the standard they have to meet is to show that this is a sham investigation. It's a bogus investigation. These investigations have, there's not any legitimate public purpose. That's the language, any legitimate public purpose. That's the standard they've set for themselves in being able to make this claim under their theory of what an abuse of power offense can be. So it's a very demanding standard that they've set for themselves to meet. And they've even said they came up and they talked a lot about the Bidens. They talked a lot about these issues in 2016 election interference because they were saying there's not even a scintilla, a scintilla of any evidence of anything worth looking into there. And that's the standard that they would have to meet, showing that there's no possible public interest and the president couldn't have had any smidgen even of a public interest motive because they recognize that once you get into a mixed motive situation, if there's both some personal motive but also a legitimate public interest motive, it can't possibly be an offense. Because it would be absurd to have the Senate trying to consider, well, was it 48% legitimate interest and 52% personal interest, or was it the other way, was it 53% and 47%? You can't divide it that way. And that's why they recognize that to have even a remotely coherent theory, the standard they have to set for themselves is establishing there is no possible public interest at all for these investigations. And if there is any possibility, if there is something that shows a possible public interest and the president could have that possible public interest motive, that destroys their case. So once you're into mixed motive land, it's clear that their case fails. There can't possibly be an impeachable offense at all. And think about it. All elected officials, to some extent, have in mind how their conduct, how their decisions, their policy decisions, will affect the next election. There's always some personal interest in the electoral outcome of policy decisions. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
That's part of representative democracy. And to go start saying now that, well, if you've got a part motive that's for your personal electoral gain, that that's somehow going to become an offense, it doesn't make any sense. And it's totally unworkable. And it can't be a basis for removing a president from office. So the, the bottom line is once you're into any mixed motive situation, once it is established that there is a legitimate public interest that, that could justify looking into something, just asking a question about something, the manager's case fails, and it fails under their own terms. They recognize that they have to show no possible public interest. There isn't any legitimate public interest. And they've totally failed to make that case. I think we've shown very clearly that both of the things that were mentioned, 2016 election interference and the Biden-Burisma situation, are things that raise at least some public interest. There's something worth looking at there. It's never been investigated in the Biden situation. Lots of their own witnesses from the State Department said that on its face, it appears to be a conflict of interest. It's at least worth raising a question about, asking a question about it. And there is that public interest, and that means their case absolutely fails. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The Democratic leader is recognized. The Democratic leader asks John, of uh, the House managers. John R. Bolton's forthcoming book states that the president wanted to continue withholding $391 million in military aid to Ukraine until Ukraine announced investigations into his top political rival and the debunked conspiracy theory about the 2016 election. Is there any way for the Senate to render a fully informed verdict in this case without hearing the testimony of Bolton, Mulvaney, and the other key eyewitnesses or without seeing the relevant documentary evidence? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, the short answer to that question is no. Uh, there's no way to have a fair trial without witnesses. Uh, and when you have a witness who is as plainly relevant as John Bolton, who goes to the heart of the most uh, serious and egregious of the president's misconduct, who has volunteered to come and testify to turn him away to look the other way, uh, I think is deeply at odds with being an impartial juror. Um, I would also add in, in response to the last question that if any part of the president's motivation was a corrupt motive, if it was a causal factor in the action to freeze the aid or withhold the meeting, that is enough to convict. It would be enough to convict under criminal law. But here there's no question about the president's motivation. And if you have any question, about the president's motivation, it makes it all the more essential to call the man who spoke directly with the president that the president confided in and said he was holding up this aid because he wanted Ukraine to conduct these political investigations that would help him in the next election. If you have any question about whether it was a factor, the factor, a quarter of the factor, all of the factor, there is a witness a subpoena away who can answer that question. But the overwhelming body of the evidence makes it very clear. On July 26th, the day after that phone call, Donald Trump speaks to Gordon Sondland. That's that conversation at Ukraine restaurant. And what does Gordon Sondland, um, what is the president's question of Gordon Sondland the day after that call is he going to do the investigations? 
Now, counsel the President would have you believe the President was concerned about burden sharing. Well, he may have had a generic concern about burden sharing in other contexts. But here, the motivation was abundantly clear. On that phone with Gordon Sondland, the only question he wanted an answer to was, is he going to do the investigation? Now, bear in mind, he's talking to the ambassador to the European Union. What better person to talk to if his real concern was about burden sharing than the guy responsible for Europe's burden sharing? But did the president raise this at all? Of course not. Of course not. And if you have any question about it at all, you need to hear from his former national security advisor. Don't wait for the book. Don't wait to March 17th, when it is in black and white, to find out the answer to your question. Was it all the motive, some of the motive, or none of the motive? Now, we think, as I mentioned, the case is overwhelmingly clear without John Bolton. But if you have any question about it, um, you can erase all doubt. Um, now, let me, let me show you a, a video, underscore uh, number two, slide two, how important this is. This House managers, really, their goal should be to give you all of the facts because they're asking you to do something very, very consequential. And ask yourself, ask yourself, given the facts you heard today that they didn't tell you, who doesn't want to talk about the facts? Who doesn't want to talk about the facts? Impeachment shouldn't be a shell game. They should give you the facts. Last video, which is even more important and on point for Mr. Bolton, number three. And once again, not a single witness in the House record that they compiled and developed under their procedures that we've discussed and will continue to discuss provided any firsthand evidence that the president ever linked the presidential meeting to any investigations. Anyone who spoke with the president said that the president made clear that there was no linkage between security assistance and investigations. No, that's not correct, right? Because, of course, Mick Mulvaney said that the money was linked to these investigations. He said, in acknowledging a quid pro quo, they do it all the time and we should just get over it. Gordon Sondland also said, the president said on the one hand, no quid pro quo, but also made it clear that Zelensky had to go to the mic and announce these investigations. Thank you. Thank you, Justice. Question from Senator Markey to the House managers. On Monday, President Trump tweeted, the Democrat-controlled House never even asked John Bolton to testify, end quote. So that the record is accurate, did House impeachment investigators ask Mr. Bolton to testify? Senators, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, of course we asked John Bolton to testify in the House, and he refused. Uh, we asked his deputy, um, Dr. Kupperman, to testify, and he refused. Fortunately, we asked their deputy, Dr. Fiona Hill, to testify, and she did. We asked her deputy, Colonel Vindman, to testify, and he did. But we did seek the testimony of John Bolton, 
uh, as well as Dr. Kupperman, and they refused. When we subpoenaed Dr. Kupperman, he sued us, uh, took us to court. Uh, when we raised a subpoena with John Bolton's counsel, the same counsel for Dr. Kupperman, the answer was, Senator, you serve us with a subpoena and we will sue you too. Um, we knew, based on the McGahn litigation, it would take months, if not years, to force John Bolton to come and testify. Um, and I should point out, because I think this is a, an essential point to underscore, as the President's lawyers say, they didn't try hard enough to get John Bolton, or they should have subpoenaed John Bolton. That's what they're telling you. But let me show you what they're telling the court in the McGahn litigation. If we could pull up slide number 39. This is the President's lawyers in court in the McGahn litigation. In the Court of Appeals right now, quote, the committee, meaning our committee, lacks Article III standing to sue to enforce a congressional subpoena demanding testimony from an individual on matters related to duties as an executive branch official. I mean, it takes your breath away, the duplicity of that argument. They're before you saying they should have tried harder to get these witnesses, they should have subpoenaed, they should have litigated for years, and down the street in the federal courthouse, they're arguing, judge, you need to throw them out. They have no standing to sue to force a witness to testify. Are we really prepared to accept that? Now, counsel says, think about the precedent that we would be setting if you allow a House to impeach a president and you permit them to call witnesses. Well, I would submit, think about the precedent you will be setting if you don't allow witnesses in a trial. That, to me, is the much more dangerous precedent here. But I'll, I'll tell you there's something even more dangerous, and this was something that we anticipated from the very beginning, which is we understood when we got to this point they could no longer contest the facts that the president withheld military aid from an ally at war to coerce that ally to doing the president's political dirty work. So now they have fallen back on, you shouldn't hear any further evidence, any further witnesses on this subject. What's more, we're going to use the, the end-all argument, so what? A president is free to abuse their power. We're going to rely on a constitutional theory, a fringe theory, that even the advocate of which says is outside of the consensus of constitutional law to say that a president can abuse his power with impunity. Now imagine where that leads. A president can abuse his power with impunity. Now, that argument made by Professor Dershowitz is at odds with the Attorney General's own expressed opinion on the subject, with Ken Starr's expressed opinion on the subject, with not only other counsel for the president, Jonathan Turley, who testified in the House, says that theory is constitutional, effectively, nonsense. But even 60-year-old Alan Dershowitz doesn't agree with 81-year-old Alan Dershowitz. And for a reason, because where that conclusion leads us is that a president can abuse his power in any kind of way, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, are we really ready to accept the position that this president or the next can withhold hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to an ally at war unless they get help in their reelection? 
Would we say that you could, as president, withhold disaster relief from a governor unless that governor got his attorney general to investigate the president's political rival? Mr. Chief Justice. The senator from Tennessee. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk on my behalf and also joined by Senators Loeffler, Lee, Kramer, and McSally. The senators ask of counsel for the president, is the standard for impeachment in the House a lower threshold to meet than the standard for conviction in the Senate? And have the House managers met their evidentiary burden to support a vote of removal? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, the standard in the House, of course, the House is not making a final determination in the structure of the Constitution. An impeachment is simply an accusation. And as in most systems where there is simply an accusation being made, uh, the House does not have to adhere to the same standard that is used in the Senate. It is spoken of in terms of the criminal law the offenses that define the jurisdiction for the Senate uh, sitting as a court of impeachment are treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. The Constitution speaks of a conviction upon being convicted uh, in the Senate. It speaks of all crimes being tried by jury except in cases of impeachment, again suggesting uh, notions of the criminal law. And as we pointed out in our trial memorandum, all of these textual references uh, make it clear that the standards of the criminal law should apply in the trial, certainly to the extent of the burden and standard of proof to be carried by the House managers, which means proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They have failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, failed even to prove it by clear and convincing evidence, failed to prove it at all, in my opinion. Mr. Senator Chief, from California is recognized. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question uh, to the House managers. Senator Feinstein asks the House managers. The President's counsel stated that, quote, there is simply no evidence anywhere that President Trump ever linked security assistance to any investigations, end quote. Is that true? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and thank you, Senator, for that question. The President's counsel is not correct. There is, in fact, overwhelming evidence that the President withheld the military aid directly to get a personal political benefit to help his individual political campaign. There's a few points that I'd like to submit for your consideration. And I'll make one final point. Again, if you have any lingering questions about direct evidence, any thoughts about anything we just talked about, anything I just relayed, or that we've talked about the last week, there is a way to shed additional light on it. You can subpoena Ambassador Bolton and ask him that question directly. Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Utah. I send a question to the desk. Senator Lee asks uh, of counsel for the president. The House managers have argued aggressively that the President's actions contravened U.S. foreign policy. Isn't it the President's place, certainly more than the place of career civil servants, to conduct foreign policy? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, and thank you for that question. Um, 
It is definitely the president's place to set U.S. foreign policy, and the Constitution makes this clear. Article 2, Section 1 vests the entirety of the executive authority in a president of the United States. And it's critically important in our constitutional structure that that authority is vested solely in the president, because the president is elected by the people every four years. So he sets foreign policy. And if staffers disagree with him, that does not mean that the president is doing something wrong. And this is a critical point, because this is one of the centerpieces of the abuse of power theory that the House managers would like this body to adopt. And that is that they are going to impeach the president based solely on his subjective motive. The premise of their case is the objective actions that were taken were perfectly permissible and within the president's constitutional authority. But if his real reason, if we get inside his head and figure it out, then we can impeach him. A policy difference, and a policy difference where the president is the one who gets to determine policy because he's been elected by the people to do that. And we're right now only a few months away from another election where the people can decide for themselves whether they like what the president has done with that authority or not. The senator from New Hampshire. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk. Senator Shaheen asks the House managers, the President's counsel has argued that the alleged conduct set out in the articles does not violate a criminal statute and thus may not constitute grounds for impeachment as high crimes and misdemeanors. Does this reasoning imply that if the President does not violate a criminal statute, he could not be impeached for abuses of power, such as ordering tax audits of political opponents, suspending habeas corpus rights, indiscriminately investigating political opponents, or asking foreign powers to investigate members of Congress. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, I appreciate the question. The simple answer is that a president can be impeached without a statutory crime being committed. That was the position and the question was rejected in President Nixon's case and rejected again in President Clinton's case. It should be rejected here in President Trump's case. The great preponderance of legal authority confirms he has committed an impeachable offense. The records of the Constitutional Convention offer further clarity. At the Constitutional Convention itself, no delegate, no delegate linked impeachment to the technicalities of criminal law. Instead, the framers principally intended impeachment for three forms of presidential wrongdoing, the ABCs of impeachment. A, abuse of power. B, betrayal of the national interest through foreign entanglements. And C, corruption of office and elections. When a president abuses his power to obtain illicit help in his election from a foreign power, and undermine our national security and election integrity. It is a trifecta. Thank you. Senator from Louisiana. Senator from Vermont. Senator Leahy asks the House managers, the President's counsel argues that there was no harm done, that the aid was ultimately released to Ukraine, the President met with Zelensky at the UN in September, 
and that this president has treated Ukraine more favorably than his predecessors. What is your response? We promised Ukraine in 2014 that if they gave up their nuclear arsenal, that we would be there for them, that we would defend them, that we would fight along beside them. 15,000 Ukrainians have died. It took the work of some senators in this room who had to pass additional laws to make sure that the Ukrainians did not lose out on 35 million additional dollars. And contrary to the president's tweet that all of the aid arrived and that it arrived ahead of schedule, that is not true. All of the aid has not arrived. And let's talk about what kind of signal withholding the aid for no legitimate reason. The president talked about burden sharing, but nothing had changed on the ground. Holding the aid for no legitimate reason sent a strong message that we would not want to send to Russia, that the relationship between the United States and Ukraine was on shaky ground. Senator Cruz. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk. The question is addressed to counsel for the president. As a matter of law, does it matter if there was a quid pro quo? Is it true that quid pro quos are often used in foreign policy? The only thing that would make a quid pro quo unlawful is if the quo were in some way illegal. Now, we talked about motive. There are three possible motives that a political figure can have. One, a motive in the public interest, and the Israel argument would be in the public interest. The second is in his own political interest, and the third, which hasn't been mentioned, would be in his own financial interest, his own pure financial interest. When President Lincoln told General Sherman to let the troops go to Indiana so that they can vote for the Republican Party, Let's assume the president was running at that point, and it was in his electoral interest to have these soldiers put at risk the lives of many, many other soldiers who would be left without their company. Would that be an unlawful quid pro quo? No, because the president, A, believed it was in the national interest, but B, he believed that his own election was essential to victory in the Civil War. Every president believes that. That's why it's so dangerous to try to psychoanalyze a president, to try to get into the in intricacies of the human mind. Coming up on the next season of Drilled. Remember back in season one when I said all this stuff that we think of as new today, information wars, the whole American propaganda machine, was actually developed by fossil fuel interests? This season, we're going to prove the hell out of that theory fake news, dark money, it's all got oil all over it, and particularly the fingerprints of a few key men. It's these madmen of climate denial that we'll be focusing on in season three. Get ready. The story's got a little bit of everything, and it is wild. Recognize the dem Democratic leader. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk. The question is for the House managers. Would you please respond to the answer that was just given by the President's counsel? I would be delighted. Um, 
There are two arguments that uh, Professor Dershowitz makes. One that is, I have to say, a very odd argument for a criminal defense lawyer to make, and that is it is highly unusual to have a discussion in a trial about the defendant's state of mind, intent, or mens rea. In every courtroom in America, in every criminal case, or almost every criminal case, except for a very small sliver that are strict liability, the question of the defendant's intent and state of mind is always an issue. So this is nothing novel here. You don't require a mind reader in every criminal case. Now, some of you said earlier, well, if they could prove a quid pro quo over the military, now that would be something. Well, we have. So now the argument shifts to all quid pro quos are just fine. They're all the same. Well, I'm going to apply Professor Dershowitz's own test. He talked about the step test, John Rawls, the philosopher. Um, let's put the shoe on the other foot and see how that changes our perception of things. But I want to merge that argument with one of the other presidential counsel's argument when they, when they resorted to the whataboutism about Barack Obama's open mic. Now, that was a very poor analogy, I think you'll agree, but let's use that analogy and let's make it more comparable to today and see how you feel about this scenario. President Obama, on an open mic, says to Medvedev, hey, Medvedev, I know you don't want me to send this military money to Ukraine because they're fighting and killing your people. I want you to do me a favor, though. I want you to do an investigation of Mitt Romney. Um, and I want you to announce you found uh, dirt on Mitt Romney. And if you're willing to do that, quid pro quo, I won't give Ukraine the money they need to fight you on the front line. Do any of us have any question that Barack Obama would be impeached for that kind of misconduct? Are we really ready to say that that would be okay if Barack Obama asked Medvedev to investigate his opponent and would withhold money from an ally that it needed to defend itself to get an investigation because all quid pro quos are fine, it's carte blanche? Is that really what we're prepared to say uh, with respect to this president's conduct or the next? Because if we are, then the next president of the United States can ask for an investigation of you. Uh, they can ask for help in their next election from any foreign power. And the argument will be made, nope, Donald Trump was acquitted for doing exactly the same thing. Therefore, it must not be impeachable. Now, bear in mind that efforts to cheat an election are always going to be in proximity to an election. And if you say you can't hold a president accountable in an election year where they're trying to cheat in that election, then you are giving them carte blanche. Senator Grassley asks counsel for the president, does the House's failure to enforce its subpoenas render its, quote, obstruction of Congress, end quote, theory unprecedented? Mr. Chief Justice, senators, uh, the answer is yes. As far as I am aware, there has never been a prior instance in which there's been an attempt, uh, even in the House, as in the Nixon proceeding, never mind in the Clinton proceeding, which actually left the House and came to the Senate, to suggest that there can be obstruction of Congress when there hasn't been anything beyond simply issuing a subpoena, getting resistance, and then throwing up your hands and giving up and saying, oh, well, that's obstruction. Uh, in the Clinton situation, 
most of the litigation was with the independent counsel, and there were privileges asserted and litigation and litigation again and again. But the point is that the issues about the privileges were all litigated, and they were resolved before things came to this body. Similarly, in uh, the Nixon uh, impeachment proceeding uh, in, within the House, a lot of investigation had been done by the special counsel, and there was litigation over assertions of privileges there in order to get at the tapes, and some tapes or transcripts had already been turned over. But again, there was litigation about the assertion of the privilege in response to the grand jury subpoena that then fed into the House's proceedings. So it would be completely unprecedented for the House to attempt to actually bring a charge of obstruction into the Senate where all they can present is, well, we issued a subpoena, and there were legal grounds asserted for the invalidity of the subpoena. And I'll note the House managers have said, and I'm sure that they will say again today, that, well, but if we had gone to court, the Trump administration would have said that the courts don't have jurisdiction over those claims. Now, that is, that is true in some cases, there's one being litigated right now related to the former counsel to the President, Don McGahn. The Trump administration position, just like the position of the Obama administration, is that an effort by the House to enforce a subpoena in Article III court is a non-justiciable controversy. That is our position, and we would argue that in court. But that's part of what would have to be litigated. That doesn't change the fact that the House managers can't have it both ways. And I want to make this clear. The House managers want to say that they have an avenue for going to court. They're using that avenue for going to court. They actually told the court in McGahn that once they reached an impasse with the executive branch, the courts were the only way to resolve the impasse. So if they think that the courts can resolve that dispute, that's the next step. They should do that and have that litigated. Senator Stabenow asked the House managers. Would the House managers care to correct the record on any falsehoods or mischaracterizations in the White House's opening arguments? Let's be clear. On July 25th, that's not the whole evidence before us, even though it includes devastating evidence of the President's scheme. President Trump's intent was made clear on the July 25th call, but we had uh, evidence uh, of information before the meetings uh, with Mr. Bolton, the text message uh, to Mr. Zelensky's people telling him he had to uh, do the investigations to get what he wanted, all of this evidence that makes us understand that phone call even more clearly. Now, the president's team claimed that Mr. Zelensky and other Ukrainians said they never felt press, uh, pressure to open investigations. Now. Of course, they didn't say that publicly. They were afraid of the Russians uh, finding out. But Zelensky said privately that he didn't want to be involved in U.S. domestic politics. He resisted announcing the investigations. He only relented and scheduled the um, CNN meeting after it became clear that he was not going to receive the, uh, the support that he needed and that Congress had provided in our appropriations. That's the definition of pressure. Now, Ukraine, the president's uh, lawyers say, didn't know that Trump was withholding 
the security assistance until it was public. Many witnesses have uh, con contested that, including the open statement by Olena Zirkel, who was then the deputy foreign minister of Ukraine, uh, that they knew about the president's hold on the security uh, matters. Uh, and in the end, everyone knew it was public. And uh, after it was, Ukraine did relent and schedule that testimony. Fourth, they said no witnesses said security was conditioned on the investigations. Not so. Mulvaney, uh, we had other witnesses uh, talking about the shakedown for the security assistance. Now, the Independent Government Accountability Office concluded that the president violated federal law when he withheld that aid. Uh, that uh, misconduct is still going on. All the aid has not yet been released. And uh, finally, I'd just like to say there's been some confusion, I think. I'm sure not intentional. But the president surely does not need the permission of his staff about foreign policy. That information is offered to you as evidence of what he thought he was doing. And he did not appear to be pursuing a policy agenda. He appeared, from all the evidence, to be pursuing a corruption, a corruption of our election that's upcoming, a high crime and misdemeanor that requires conviction and removal. Senator from Arkansas. I send a question to the desk for the President's Council on behalf of myself and Senators Bozeman, McSally, Blackburn, Kennedy, and Toomey. The Senators ask the President's Council, did the House bother to seek testimony or litigate executive privilege issues during the month during which it held up the impeachment articles before sending them to the Senate? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, uh, no, they, the House did not uh, seek to litigate any of the privilege issues during that time. Um, in fact, they, they filed no lawsuits arising from this impeachment inquiry to seek to contest the bases that uh, the Trump administration gave for resisting the subpoenas, the basis for why those subpoenas were invalid. And when litigation was filed by one of the subpoena recipients, that was Dr. Charles Kupperman, the Deputy National Security Advisor, he went to the court and sought a declaratory judgment saying, President's told me I shouldn't go. I have a subpoena from the House saying I should go. Please, courts, tell me what are my obligations. And that uh, was filed, I believe, around October 25th. It was towards the end of October. Very shortly, within a few days, the uh, court had set an expedited briefing schedule and scheduled a hearing for December 10th that was supposed to hear both preliminary motions to dismiss, but also the merits issues. So they were going to get a decision after a hearing on December 10th that would go to the merits of the issue. Uh, the House managers withdrew the subpoena. The, the House of Representatives decided they wanted to moot out the case so they wouldn't get a decision. So no, the, the House has not pursued litigation. I, I believe the exact words are, it gives the House the last word, something to that effect. And I mentioned this the other day. This is the new constitutional theory that because they have the sole power of impeachment, in their view, it's actually the paramount power of impeachment. 
and all other constitutionally based privileges or rights or immunities or roles even of the other branches, both the judiciary and the executive, fall away. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of the House's power of impeachment. If they issue a subpoena, the executive has to respond. And it can't raise any constitutionally based separation of powers concerns. If you do, that's obstruction. The courts, courts have no role. The House has the sole power of impeachment. And that's a very dangerous construct for our Constitution. The Constitution requires when there are interbranch conflicts that there be an accommodation process, that there be attempts to address the interests of both branches. And the, the House has taken the position, and in other litigation, the McGahn litigation, they're telling the courts, the courts are the only way to resolve these issues. And they brought that case uh, in August. They already have a decision from the district court. They have an appeal in the D.C. Circuit. It was argued on January 3rd. A decision could come any day. That's pretty fast for litigation. But they've decided in this impeachment they don't, they don't want to do litigation. The Senator from New Mexico. Thank you for the recognition, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk. The question is for the House managers. Please address the President's counsel's argument that House managers seek to overturn the results of the 2016 election and that the decision to remove the President should be left to the voters in November. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, and, you know, first I just want to respond to something counsel just said. Nine months is pretty fast for litigation in the courts. Sadly, I agree with that. Nine months is pretty fast in the McGahn case, and we still don't have a decision yet. And what's more, that's the very case in which they're arguing, as I quoted earlier, that Congress has no right to come to the courts to force a witness to testify. So here we are nine months later in that litigation that they said we're compelled under the Constitution to bring, and they're saying in court, you can't bring this, and it's nine months, and we still don't have a decision. I think that tells you just where they're coming from. It all goes back to the President's directive, fight all subpoenas, and they are. Nixon was going to be impeached for far less obstruction than anything that Donald Trump did. Now, the argument, well, if you impeach a president, you are overturning the results of the last election, and you're tearing up the ballots in the next election. Okay, if that were the case, there would be no impeachment clause in the Constitution. Because by definition, if you're impeaching a president, that president is in office, has won an election. Clearly, that's not what the founders had in mind. What they had in mind is if the president commits high crimes and misdemeanors, you must remove him from office. It is not voiding the last election. It is protecting the next election. Indeed, the impeachment power was put in the Constitution not as a punishment. That's what the criminal laws are for, but to protect the country. Now, if you say you can't impeach a president before the next election, what you're really saying is you can only impeach a president in their second term. Okay, if that were going to be the constitutional requirement the founders would have put in the Constitution, a president may commit whatever high crimes and misdemeanors that he wants as long as it's in the first term. Um, that is clearly not what any rational framer would have written, and indeed they didn't. And they didn't for a reason. The founders were concerned that in fact the object of a president's corrupt scheme might be to cheat in the very form of accountability that they had prescribed the election. Senator Cornyn asks counsel for the president. What are the consequences to the presidency 
the President's constitutional role as the head of the executive branch and the advice the President can expect from his senior advisors if the Senate seeks to resolve claims of executive privilege for subpoenas in this impeachment trial without any determination by an Article III court. Mr. Chief Justice, and thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, the Supreme Court has recognized that the confidentiality of communications with the President is essential, keeping that, those communications con confidential is essential for the proper functioning of government. In Nixon versus the United States, the Court explained that this privilege is grounded in the separation of powers and essential for the functioning of the executive for this reason. In order to receive candid advice, the president has to be able to be sure that those who are speaking with him have the confidence that what they say is not going to be revealed, that their advice can remain confidential. If the president were acting in the interest of national security, as he alleges, would there be documentary evidence or testimony to substantiate his claim? If yes, has any evidence like that been presented by the president's counsel? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Senators, for the question. Uh, the answer is yes. Right? There are well-established processes, mechanisms, and agencies in place to pursue valid and legitimate national security interests of the United States, like the National Security Council, like the National Security Advisor. From the time of the President's call on July 25th to the time the, lift, the hold was lifted, those individuals, those agencies were in the dark. They didn't know what was happening. And more so, not only were they in the dark, but the President violated the law by violating the Impoundment Control Act to execute his scheme. None of that suggests a valid, legitimate policy objective. More so, the President himself and his counsel is bringing at issue the question of documents and witnesses. Senator Graham and Senator Cruz pose this question for the House managers. In Mr. Schiff's hypothetical, if President Obama had evidence that Mitt Romney's son was being paid $1 million per year by a corrupt Russian company, and Mitt Romney had acted to benefit that company, would Obama have authority to ask that that potential corruption be investigated? Well, first of all, the hypothetical is a bit off, uh, because it presumes that uh, in that hypothetical that uh, President Obama was acting corruptly, or there was evidence he was acting corruptly with respect to uh, his son. But nonetheless, let's take your hypothetical on its terms. Um, would it have been impeachable if Barack Obama had tried to get Medvedev to do an investigation of Mitt Romney, uh, whether it was justified or unjustified? The reality is, for a president to withhold military aid from an ally, uh, or in the hypothetical, to withhold it to benefit an adversary, to target their political opponent is wrong and corrupt, period. Uh, end of story. Uh, and if you allow a president to rationalize that conduct, rationalize jeopardizing the nation's security, 
to benefit himself because he believes that his opponent should be investigated by a foreign power, that is impeachable. Now, if you have a legitimate reason to think that any U.S. person has committed an offense, there are legitimate ways to have an investigation conducted. There are legitimate ways to have the Justice Department conduct an investigation. Now, I would suggest to you that for a president to turn to his Justice Department and say, I want you to investigate my political rival, taints whatever investigation they do. Presidents should not be in the business of asking even their own Justice Department to investigate their rivals. The Justice Department ought to have some independence from the political desires of the president. And one of the deeply troubling uh, circumstances of the current presidency is you do have a president of the United States speaking quite openly, urging his Justice Department to investigate his perceived enemies. That should not take place either. But under no circumstances do you go outside of your own legitimate law enforcement process to ask a foreign power to investigate your rival, whether you think there's cause or you don't think there's cause. And you certainly don't invite that foreign power to try to influence an election to your benefit. It's remarkable to me that we even have to have this conversation. The question from Senator Peters is for the House managers. Does the phrase or other high crimes and misdemeanors in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution require a violation of the U.S. Criminal Code or is a breach of public trust sufficient? Please explain. Framers were very clear that abuse of power is an impeachable offense. In explaining why the Constitution must allow impeachment, Edmund Randolph warned that, quote, the executive will have great opportunities of abusing his power. Alexander Hamilton described high crimes and misdemeanors as offenses which proceed from the abuse or violation of some public trust. The framers also described what it meant. It was impeachable for a president to abuse his pardon power to shelter people he was connected with in a suspicious manner. Future Supreme Court Justice James Iredell said the president would be liable to impeachment if he'd acted from some corrupt motive or other, or if he was willfully abusing his trust. As was later stated in a treatise summarizing centuries of common law, abuse of power occurs if a public officer entrusted with definite powers to be exercised for the benefit of the community wickedly abuses or fraudulently exceeds them. So when the framers said this, that abuse of power was impeachable, wasn't just an empty, uh, meaningless uh, state. Remember, the founders had been participating with overthrowing the British government, a king who was not accountable. They incorporated the impeachment power into the Constitution, late actually, in the drafting of the Constitution. They knew that they were giving the president many powers, and they specified if he abused them that those powers could be taken away. Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senator Murkowski. Thank you, Senator. Senators ask counsel for the president. 
Describe in further detail your contention that all subpoenas issued prior to the passage of House Resolution 660 are an exercise of invalid subpoena authority by the House committees. Article 1, that the sole power of impeachment is assigned to the House. That's to the House of Representatives as a body. It's not assigned to any committee, to a subcommittee, or to any particular member of the House. And in cases such as Roomley versus United States and um, uh, the United States versus Watkins, the court has been called, there are disputes about subpoenas. They're not specifically in the impeachment context, but they establish a general rule, a principle, that whenever a committee of either body of Congress issues a subpoena to someone and that person resists the subpoena, the courts will examine what was the authority of that committee or subcommittee to issue that subpoena. And it has to be traced back to some authorizing rule or resolution from the House of Representatives itself, for example, in a House subcommittee. And the courts will examine, the, the Supreme Court has made clear that that is the charter of the committee's authority. It gets its authority solely from an action by the House itself. That requires a vote of the House, either to establish the committee by resolution or to establish by rule the standing authority of that committee. And if the committee cannot trace its authority to a rule or a resolution from the House, then its subpoena is invalid. And the Supreme Court's made clear in those cases such subpoenas are null and void because they're ultra viris. They are beyond the power of the committee to issue. They can't be enforced. The question is directed to the House managers. In Federalist 65, Alexander Hamilton writes that the subjects of impeachment are, quote, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, end quote. Could you speak broadly to the duties of being a public servant and how you believe the President's actions have violated this trust? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, members of the Senate, President Trump used the powers of his office to solicit a foreign nation to interfere in our elections for his own benefit. Then he actively obstructed Congress in his attempts to investigate his abuses of power. These actions are clearly impeachable. The key purpose of the impeachment clause is to control abuses of power by public officials, that is to say, conduct that violates the public trust. Since the founding of the Republic, all impeachments have been based on accusations of conduct that violates the public trust. When the framers wrote the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, they intended to capture the conduct of public officials like President Trump who showed no respect for their oath of office. President Trump ignored the law and the Constitution in order to gain a political favor. The Constitution and his oath of office prohibited him from using his official favor to corruptly benefit himself rather than the American people. That's exactly what the President did, illegally withholding military aid and a White House meeting until the President of Ukraine committed to announcing an investigation of President Trump's opponent. In the words of one constitutional scholar, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created the Constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. And now I want to add, in reference to some of the comments that were made by uh, some of the President's uh, uh, counsel a few minutes ago, they talk about the subpoena power, about the failure of the House to act properly in the subpoena power, because they said, uh, the House did not delegate by rule, have a resolution 
authorizing the committees to offer subpoena power. You apparently haven't read the fact that the House has generally delegated all subpoena power to the committees. That wasn't true at the time of the Watkins case. It wasn't true 15 years ago, but it is true now. The question from Senator King is for uh, both counsel to the President and the House managers. President Trump's former Chief of Staff, General John Kelly, has reportedly said, quote, I believe John Bolton, end quote, and suggests Bolton should testify, saying, quote, if there are people that could contribute to this, either innocence or guilt, I think they should be heard, end quote. Do you agree with General Kelly that they should be heard? I think, uh, counsel for the President, it's your turn to go first. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. This was a, a bit of a topic that I discussed yesterday, and that was the um, information that came out in the New York Times uh, piece about what is purportedly in a book by Ambassador Bolton. Now, as I've said, the idea that a manuscript that's not in the book, there's not a quote from the manuscript in the book, this is a perception of what the statement might be, um, there have been very forceful statements, not just from the President, but from the Attorney General. Uh, the Department of Justice stated that while the Department of Justice has not reviewed Mr. Bolton's manuscript, the New York Times account of this conversation grossly mischaracterizes what Attorney General Barr and Mr. Bolton discussed. There was no discussion of, and this again, personal favors or undue influence on investigations, nor did Attorney General Barr state that the President's conversations with foreign leaders were improper. So again, that goes to some of the allegations that were, that, that, that were in the article. Uh, the Vice President said the same thing. He said, in every conversation with the President and Vice President in preparation for our trip to Poland, the President consistently expresses frustration that the United States was bearing the lion's share of responsibility. There's also a, a, um, an interview that Ambassador Bolton had given, I think in August, um, about the conversation where he said it was a perfectly appropriate conversation. I think that information's um, publicly available now. So again, to, to move that into a, a, a change in proceeding, so to speak, I, I think is, is not correct. The evidence that has already been presented, a accusation that if you get into witnesses, I'll do this very briefly, if we get down the road on the witness issues, let's be clear. It, will, it should not be. I certainly can't dictate to this body. It should certainly not be, though, that the House managers get John Bolton and the President's lawyers get no witnesses. We would expect if they're going to get witnesses, we will get witnesses, and those witnesses uh, would then. But all of that, just to be clear, changes the nature and scope of the proceedings. They didn't ask for it before. Uh, Senator, uh, um Justice, what's the significance of the President's former Chief of Staff saying that he believes John Bolton uh, and implicitly does not believe the President, uh, that Bolton should testify? Um, it's really, at the end of the day, not whether I believe John Bolton or whether General Kelly believes John Bolton, but whether you believe John Bolton, uh, whether you'll have an opportunity to hear directly from John Bolton, whether you have the opportunity to evaluate his credibility for yourself. Now, there are a few arguments made against this. Uh, some are rather extraordinary. It would be unprecedented, the suggestion, I think, is to have witnesses in a trial. What, a, what an extraordinary idea. 
But as, as my colleagues have said, it would be extraordinary not to. Uh, this will be the first impeachment trial in history that involves no witnesses if you decide you don't want to hear from any, that you simply want to rely on what was investigated in the House. Uh, that would be unprecedented. Yes, we should be able to call witnesses, and yes, so should the President, relevant witnesses. Now, the President says that uh, you can't believe John Bolton, and Mick Mulvaney says you can't believe John Bolton. Well, let the President call Mick Mulvaney another relevant witness with firsthand information, if he's willing to say publicly, not under oath, that Bolton is wrong, let him come and say that under oath. Yes, we're not saying that just one side gets to call witnesses, both sides get to call relevant witnesses. Now, they also make the argument implicitly, well, you're just gonna take, this is gonna take long, Senator's gotta warn you, if you were on a real trial, it's gonna require witnesses, and that's gonna take time. And I think the, 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 underlying threat, and I don't mean this in a harsh way, but is we're going to make this really time-consuming. The deposition took place very quickly in the House. We have a perfectly good Chief Justice behind me that can rule on evidentiary issues. What's more, the President has waived and waived and waived any claim about national security here. By talking about himself, by declassifying the call record, we're not interested in asking John Bolton about uh, Venezuela or other places or other countries, just Ukraine. And if there's any question about it, the Chief Justice can resolve these are relevant questions to the matter at hand. What you cannot do is use privilege to hide wrongdoing of an impeachable kind and character. Thank you, Mr. Manager. The question is directed to counsel for the President. Is it true that Sean Misko, Abigail Grace, and the alleged whistleblower were employed by or detailed to the National Security Council during the same time period between January 20, 2017 and the present? Do you have reason to believe that they knew each other? Do you have any reason to believe that the alleged whistleblower and Misko coordinated to fulfill their reported commitment to, quote, do everything we can to take, down, take out the president, end quote? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, um, w the only knowledge that um, we have, that I have of this, comes from public reports. Uh, I gather that there is a news report um, in some uh, publication that suggests a name for the whistleblower, suggests where he worked, that he worked at that time um, uh, while detailed the NSC staff for then-Vice President Biden and that there were others who worked there. Uh, I, we have no knowledge of that other than what's in those public reports. When did the President's counsel first learn that the Bolton manuscript had been submitted to the White House for review, and has the President's counsel or anyone else in the White House attempted in any way to prohibit, block, disapprove, or discourage John Bolton or his publisher from publishing his book. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, at, at some point, I don't, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head the exact date. Um, the manuscript had been submitted to the NSC for review. It is with career NSC staff for review. The White House Counsel's Office was notified that it was there. Um, the NSC has released a statement explaining that it has not been reviewed by anyone outside NSC staff. In terms of the second part of the question, 
Um, has there been any attempt to prevent its publication or to block its publication? I think that there was some misinformation put out into the public realm earlier today. Ambassador Bolton was notified that the manuscript he submitted contains a significant amount of classified information, including at the top secret level, so that in its current form, it can't be published, but that they will be working with him as expeditiously as possible to provide guidance so it can be revised and so that he can tell his story. Senator Feinstein. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk on behalf of Senator Carper, Coons, Hirono, Leahy, Tester, Udall, uh, to the House managers and on behalf of myself. Thank you. Senator Feinstein and the other senators is to the House managers. The President has taken the position that there should be no witnesses and no documents provided by the executive branch in response to these impeachment proceedings. Is there any precedent for this blanket refusal to cooperate? And what are the consequences if the Senate accepts this position here? Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, President Trump has taken really an extreme measure to hide this evidence uh, from Congress. No president has ever issued an order to direct a witness to refuse to cooperate in an impeachment inquiry before this. Despite his famous attempts to conceal the most damaging evidence against him, even President Nixon allowed senior officials to testify under oath. Not only did he allow them, he told them to go to Congress voluntarily and answer all relevant questions truthfully. But President Trump issued a blanket order directing the entire executive branch to withhold all documents and testimony from the House of Representatives. It was, this order was categorical, it was indiscriminate, unprecedented. Its purpose was clear to prevent Congress from doing its duty under the Constitution to hold the President accountable for high crimes and misdemeanors. Telling every person who works in the White House and every person who works in every department agency uh, and office of the executive branch uh, is just not precedented. Uh, it wasn't about specific, narrowly defined privileges. He never asserted privileges. And the President's counsel has mentioned over and over that he had uh, some reason because of the subpoenas. Well, I'll tell you, we adopt rules about subpoenas in the House. The Senate is a continuing body, but the House isn't. And in January, we adopted our rules and it allows the committee chairman to issue subpoenas. And that's what they did. He refused to comply with those subpoenas, not because he exerted executive privilege, because he didn't like what we were doing. He tried to say it was invalid, but it was valid. And actually, he doesn't have the authority to be the arbiter of the rules of the House. We're opening the door not just to eliminating the impeachment clause in the Constitution. Try doing oversight. Try doing oversight, Senators, and we're thinking about that in the House. If the President can just say, we're not sending any witnesses, we're not sending any documents, we don't have to, we don't like your processes, we have a wholesale rejection of what you're doing. 
That's not the way our Constitution was created, where each body has a responsibility. There's a sharing of power. I, and I know you, cherish the responsibility that we have. That will be eviscerated if the President's complete stonewalling is allowed to persist and be accepted by this body. You have to act now in this moment. I sent a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senator Murkowski. The question is to counsel for the president. Witnesses testified before the House that President Trump consistently expressed the view that Ukraine was a corrupt country. Before Vice President Biden formally entered the 2020 presidential race in April 2019, did President Trump ever mention Joe or Hunter Biden in connection with corruption in Ukraine to former Ukrainian President Poroshenko or other Ukrainian officials, President Trump's cabinet members or top aides or others? If so, what did the president say to whom and when? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. Um, of course, I think it's important at the outset to frame the answer by bearing in mind I'm limited to what's in the record, and what's in the record is determined by what the House of Representatives sought. It was their uh, proceeding. They were the ones who ran it. They were the ones who called the witnesses. So. Part of the question refers to conversations between President Trump and other cabinet members and others like that. That's, there's not something in the record on that. It wasn't thoroughly pursued in the record. So I can't point to something in the record that shows President Trump at an earlier time mentioning specifically something related to Joe or Hunter Biden. Now, the other important thing to understand in the timeline is that we've heard a lot about Rudy Giuliani, the president's private lawyer, and what was he interested in in Ukraine, and what was his role? Well, as we know, it's been made public, Mr. Giuliani, as the president's private lawyer, had been asking a lot of questions in the Ukraine dating back to the fall of 2018. And in November 2018, he said publicly he was given some tips about things to look into. He gave a dossier to the State Department in March of this year. Remember. Vice President Biden announces his candidacy in April, April 25th. In March, Rudy Giuliani gave documents to the State Department, including interview notes from interviews. Senator Harris and Murray ask the House managers. The House of Representatives is now in possession of a tape of President Trump saying of Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch, quote, get rid of her, get her out tomorrow. I don't care, get her out tomorrow, take her out, okay, do it, end quote. President Trump gave this order to Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two men who carried out Trump's pressure campaign in Ukraine at the, the direction of Rudy Giuliani. Does the discovery of this tape suggest that if the Senate does not pursue all relevant evidence, including witnesses and documents, that new evidence will continue to come to light after the Senate renders a verdict? The answer is yes. Um, what we have seen really over the last several weeks since the passage of the articles in the House of Representatives is every week, indeed, sometimes every day, there is new information coming to light. Uh, we know there's going to be new information coming to light on March 17th when the Bolton book comes out. The senator from Nebraska. 
I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senator Crapo, and Senator Risch. Thank you. The senators ask counsel for the president. The president's counsel has underscored the administration's ongoing anti-corruption focus with our allies. At what point did the United States government develop concerns about Burisma in relation to corruption and concerns with Russia? When did it become part of the president's concern, those issues related to corruption in Ukraine? Uh, of course, we have the evidence that everyone in the government, Fiona Hill testified to this, thought that anti-corruption was a major issue for U.S. policy with respect to Ukraine. And remember, everyone who testified, who was asked about it, does it seem like there's an appearance of a conflict of interest? Does it seem like that's fishy? Everyone testified below, yes, there is at least an appearance of a conflict of interest there. Mr. The Senator Justice. from Texas. I sent a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senators Moran and Hawley. It is a question for the House managers. Thank you. The question from the Senators to the House managers. An August 26, 2019 letter from the Intelligence Community Inspector General to the Director of National Intelligence discussing the so-called whistleblower stated that the Inspector General identified some indicia of an arguable political bias on the part of the complainant in favor of a rival political candidate. Multiple media outlets reported that this likely referred to the whistleblower's work with Joe Biden. Did the so-called whistleblower work at any point for or with Joe Biden? If so, did he work for or with Joe Biden on issues involving Ukraine? And did he assist in any material way with the quid pro quo in which, in which then Vice President Biden has admitted to conditioning loan guarantees to Ukraine on the firing of the prosecutor investigating Burisma? Thank the senators for the question, uh, and I want to be very careful in how I answer it so as not to disclose or give it an indication uh, that may allow others to uh, identify the identity of the whistleblower. Uh, but first, I want to uh, talk about why we're making such an effort to protect the identity of the whistleblower. Um, it's not just that we view the protection of whistleblowers as important. Members of this body have also made strong uh, statements about just how important it is to protect whistleblowers. Senator Grassley said this person appears to have followed the whistleblower protection laws and ought to be heard out and protected. We should always work with, to respect whistleblowers' requests for confidentiality. Senator Romney, whistleblowers should be entitled to confidentiality and privacy because they play a vital function in our democracy. Senator Burr, we protect whistleblowers. We protect witnesses in our committee. Uh, even my colleague, uh, the ranking member, Mr. Nunes, we want people to come forward and we will protect the identity of those at all cost. This has been a bipartisan priority and one that we have done our best to maintain. So I want to be very careful, but let me be clear about several things about the whistleblower. First of all, I don't know who the whistleblower is. I haven't met them uh, or communicated with them in any way. The, community, the committee staff did not write the complaint or coach the whistleblower what to put in the complaint. The committee staff did not see the complaint before it was submitted to the Inspector General. The committee, including its staff, did not receive the complaint 
until the night before Acting Director of National Intelligence. Uh, uh, we had an open hearing with the Acting Director on September 26, more than three weeks after the legal deadline by which the committee should have received the complaint. In short, the conspiracy theory, which I think was outlined uh, earlier, that the whistleblower colluded with the Intel Committee staff to hatch an impeachment inquiry is a complete and total fiction. Um, this was, I think, confirmed by the remarkable accuracy of the whistleblower complaint, which has been corroborated by the evidence we subsequently gathered in all material respects. Uh, so I'm not going to go into anything that could reveal or lead to the revelation of the identity of the whistleblower, but I can tell you, because my staff's names have been brought into this proceeding, that my staff acted at all times with the most complete professionalism. Uh, I am very protective of my staff, as I know you are. Uh, and I'm grateful that we have such bright, hardworking people working around the clock uh, to protect this country uh, and who have served our committee so well. Uh, and it really grieves me to see them smeared, and some of them mentioned here today have concerns about their safety and their online threats to members of my staff uh, as a result of some of the smears that have been launched against them. Your Senate Intelligence Committee and your chairman and vice chairman can tell you encourage whistleblowers to come to their committee, and so do we. And when they do, we try to figure out, is their complaint within the scope of jurisdiction of the intelligence community? And if it is, then we suggest they get a lawyer. We suggest they talk to the inspector general, which is what happened here. The whistleblower did exactly what they should, except for the president. That's unforgivable because the whistleblower exposed the wrongdoing of the president. In the president's view, that makes him or her a traitor or a spy. And as the president tells us, there is a way we used to treat traitors and spies. You wonder why we don't want to call the whistleblower? Well, first of all, we know firsthand what the whistleblower wrote secondhand in that complaint. There's no need for that whistleblower anymore, except to further endanger that person's life. The question from Senator Whitehouse and the other senators to the House managers. The missing witness rule, which dates back to 1893 Supreme Court case Graves versus United States, allows one party to obtain an adverse inference against the other for failure to produce a witness under that party's control with material information. Here, one party, the president, has prevented witnesses within his control from testifying or providing documents. Do the House managers believe senators should apply the missing witness rule here? And if so, what adverse inferences should we draw about the missing testimony and documents? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, we do believe that you should draw an adverse inference against the party resisting the testimony of these witnesses like John Bolton. Courts have long recognized that when a party has relevant evidence within his control which he fails to produce, that failure gives rise to an inference that that evidence is unfavorable to him. Courts have frequently drawn adverse inferences where a party acts in bad faith to conceal evidence or preclude witnesses from offering testimony. And I would suggest that it is bad faith when, some, uh, when counsel comes before you and says that if you really wanted these witnesses, you should have sued to get them in the House and goes into the courtroom uh, down the street and says, you can't sue to get witnesses before the House. 
But that's what's happened here. And you are, I think, not only permitted, but absolutely should draw an adverse inference that when a party is making that argument on both sides of the uh, courthouse, that the evidence those witnesses would provide runs against them. Now, the administration hasn't produced a single document, not one, a single document. That's extraordinary. They can argue executive privilege and absolute immunity. Most of that has nothing to do with the overwhelming majority of these documents, not a whit. There's no absolute immunity from providing documents. The vast, vast majority don't have anything to do with privilege, and if they did, they would be redactions, very specific redactions. None of that happened. Are you allowed to draw an adverse inference that the reason why the president's team, which has possession of those emails regarding inquiries by Ukraine into why the aid was frozen, are you allowed to draw an inference if they won't show you those emails, that those emails would confirm that Ukraine knew the aid was withheld, just like the former deputy foreign minister of Ukraine said publicly when she told the New York Times, yes, we knew. By the end of July, we knew. This is the deputy foreign minister at the time. We knew the aid was frozen, but I was instructed by Andrei Yermak not to mention it. I had a trip planned to Washington to talk to Congress. I was told not to go. Why? Because they didn't want it public. Are you entitled to draw an inference that those records, they refuse to turn over all those State Department records, the fact that they won't allow John Bolton's notes to be turned over, they won't let Ambassador Taylor's notes to be turned over? Should you draw an adverse inference? You're darn right. And finally, with respect to the, the, what, who has become a central witness here, I think the adverse inference screams at you as to why they don't want John Bolton. But you shouldn't rely on an inference here, not when you have a witness who's willing to come forward. There is no need for inference here. There's just a need for a subpoena. Senator Thune's question is for counsel for the president. Would you please respond to the arguments or assertions the House managers just made in response to the previous questions? Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I haven't read recently the case that was cited about the missing witness rule, so I can't say specifically what's in it, but I am willing to bet that the missing witness rule does not apply when there's been a valid assertion of a privilege or other immunity for keeping the witness out of court. Senator from New Hampshire. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question uh, to the desk for the House managers. Thank you. The question is for the House managers. Did Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney waive executive privilege in his October 17 press conference in which he stated that there was, quote, political influence, end quote, in the Trump administration's decision to withhold aid to Ukraine? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, distinguished members of the Senate, I thank you for uh, that question. Uh, Mick Mulvaney uh, has absolutely waived executive privilege. He has never asserted executive privilege. In fact, as the President's counsel has acknowledged, they have not asserted executive privilege once. 
President's counsel has said when we made that point during our opening arguments that that was technically true. No, it's true. It's not an alternate fact. It's a fact. You have never asserted executive privilege in connection with Mick Mulvaney's testimony or anyone else. It was not asserted as it relates to any of the 17 witnesses who testified, 12 of whom testified publicly. The other phony arguments that have been articulated respectfully are that the House needed to vote in order for the subpoenas to be valid. There is nothing in the Constitution that required the full House to vote, nothing in Supreme Court precedent, nothing under federal law, nothing under the House rules. It was a phony argument. The question from Senator Manchin reads as follows. The framers took the words high crimes and misdemeanors straight out of English law, where it had been applied to impeachments for 400, 400 years before our Constitution was written. The framers were well aware when they chose those words that Parliament had impeached officials for high crimes and misdemeanors that were not indictable as crimes. The House has repeatedly impeached and the Senate has convicted officers for high crimes and misdemeanors that were not indictable crimes. Even Mr. Dershowitz said in 1998 that an impeachable offense, quote, certainly doesn't have to be a crime, end quote. What has happened in the past 22 years to change the original intent of the framers and the historic meaning of the term high crimes and misdemeanors? It's counsel for or the president's turn. What happened since 1998 is that I studied more, did more research, read more documents, and like any academic, altered my views. That's what happens. That's what professors ought to do. And I keep reading more, and I keep writing more, and I keep refining my views. In 1998, the issue before this Senate was not whether a crime was required. It was whether the crime that Clinton was charged with was a high crime. When this impeachment began, the issue was whether a crime is required. Actually, two years earlier in a book, and then in an op-ed, I concluded, not on partisan grounds, on completely academic grounds, that you could not impeach for abuse of power and that a technical crime was not required, but criminal-like behavior was required. The first draft of the Constitution Convention said treason or bribery. That was rejected because it wasn't inclusive enough. Somebody, Mason proposed maladministration, found too vague. So they said high crimes and misdemeanors. That was a well-understood term in English law. It was a well-understood term in the, in the Warren Hastings impeachment going on in England right then. And it meant primarily abuse of power. That is the main, re that is the main meaning of high crimes and misdemeanor. Uh, Charles Pinckney said, those who behave amiss or betray their public trust, Edmund Randolph misbehaves. But the, I quoted Justice Story the other day, every impeachment in American history has been for abuse of power in one form or another. The idea that you have to have a crime, bribery is right there in the Constitution. Treason, bribery, other crimes. Bribery was not made a statutory crime until 1837, so it couldn't have been impeachment. The fact of the matter is that crimes and impeachment are two different things. 
Impeachments are not punishments for crimes. Impeachments are protections of the Republic against the President who would abuse his power, who would aggrandize power, who would, who would threaten liberty, who would threaten the separation of powers, who would threaten the powers of the Congress, who would try to arrogate power to himself. That is why punishment upon conviction for impeachment only goes to removal from office. You can't put him in jail, as you could for a crime. You can't fine him, as you could for a crime. There are two different things. An impeachable offense need not be a crime, and a crime need not be an impeachable offense. Two completely different tests, understood that way throughout American history, and uh, by all scholars, all scholars in our history, except for Mr. Dershowitz. The Senator from North Carolina. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, I send a question to the desk for the counsel of the President. Senator Burr asks, we've seen the House managers repeatedly play video clips of Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney's press conference in which they claim he said that there was a quid pro quo. How do you respond to the House managers' allegation that Mr. Mulvaney supported their claims in his press conference? Uh, we respond as uh, Mr. Philbin did earlier today with that, which is Mr. Mulvaney has issued two statements, uh, one after his uh, press conference and then one yes, uh, Monday after the New York Times article concerning Mr. Bolton's alleged manuscript, alleged statements in his manuscript. So I think the easiest thing is just to read them, to understand what he said and to put it into context for everyone in the chamber. This is from, this is the day of the press conference. Once again, the media has decided to misconstrue my comments to advance a biased and political witch hunt against President Trump. Let me be clear. There was absolutely no quid pro quo between Ukrainian military aid and any investigation into the 2016 election. The President never told me to withhold any money until the Ukrainians did anything related to the server. The only reasons we were holding the money was because of concern about lack of support from other nations and concerns over corruption. Multiple times during the more than 30-minute briefing where I took over 25 questions, I referred to President Trump's interest in rooting out corruption in Ukraine and ensuring taxpayer dollars are spent responsibly and appropriately. There was never any connection between the funds and the Ukrainians doing anything with the server. This was made explicitly obvious by the fact that the aid money was delivered without any action on the part of the Ukrainians regarding the server. There was never any condition on the flow of the aid related to the matter of the DNC server. The latest story from the New York Times coordinated with a book launch has more to do with publicity than the truth. John Bolton never informed Mick Mulvaney of any concerns surrounding Bolton's purported August conversation with the President. Nor did Mr. Mulvaney ever have a conversation with the President or anyone else indicating that Ukrainian military aid was withheld in exchange for a Ukrainian investigation of Burisma, the Bidens, or the 2016 election. Furthermore, Mr. Mulvaney has no recollection of any conversation with Mr. Giuliani resembling that reportedly described in Mr. Bolton's manuscript, 
as it was Mr. Mulvaney's practice to excuse himself from conversations between the President and his personal counsel to preserve any attorney-client privilege. So I wanted to read those statements in full so that everyone had the full context. Question is directed to counsel for the President. How does the non-criminal abuse of power standard advanced by the House managers differ from maladministration, an impeachment standard rejected by the framers? Where is the line between such an abuse of power and a policy disagreement? Thank you very much for that question, because that question, I think, hits the key to the issue that's before you today. When the framers rejected maladministration, and recall that it was introduced by Mason and rejected by Madison on the ground that it would turn our new republic into a parliamentary democracy, where a prime minister, in this case a president, can be removed at the pleasure of the legislature. Um, I do want to take this opportunity, though, to respond to Professor Dershowitz's argument while they're fresh. Um, you can say a lot of things about Alan Dershowitz. You cannot say he's unprepared. He's not unprepared today. He wasn't unprepared 21 years ago. Uh, and to believe that he would not have read 21 years ago what Mason had to say or Madison had to say or Hamilton had to say, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I think 21 years ago he understood that maladministration was rejected, but so was a provision that confined the impeachable offenses to treason and bribery alone was rejected. The Senator from New Mexico. Thank you for the recognition, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, I have uh, sent a question to the desk. I'm joined in this question by Senators Blumenthal, Leahy, and Whitehouse. Thank you. The question from Senator, Senator Udall, joined by Senators Blumenthal, Leahy, and Whitehouse, is to the House managers. The President's counsel has argued that Hunter Biden's involvement with Burisma, Burisma created a conflict of interest for his father, Joe Biden. President Trump, the Trump Organization, and his family, including those who serve in the White House, maintain significant business interests in foreign countries and benefit from foreign payments and investments. By the standard the President's counsel has applied to Hunter Biden, should Mr. Kushner and Ms. Trump's conflicts of interest with foreign governments also come under investigation? As we've talked about, the reason why we're here is because the President of the United States, the 45th President, used the power of his office to try to shake down. Let us stay focused. This doesn't have anything to do with the President's children or the Biden's children. This is about the president's wrongdoing. Question from Senator Sullivan and Langford to the uh, counsel for the president. There has been conflicting testimony about how long the Senate might be tied up in obtaining additional evidence. At the beginning of this trial, the minority leader offered 11 amendments to obtain additional evidence in the form of documents and depositions from several federal agencies. If the Senate had adopted all 11 of these amendments, how long do you think this impeachment trial would take? Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, it would take a long time. It would take a long time just to get through those motions. But there have been 17 witnesses. We're talking about now additional witnesses that the managers have put forward and that Democratic leader Schumer has discussed. He's discussed four witnesses in particular as if 
this body would, if it were to grant witnesses, would say, yes, you get those four witnesses, and the White House and the President's Council gets what? Whatever I want. That's what he said, Mr. Schiff. Whatever I want, here's who I want. I want Adam Schiff. I want Hunter Biden. I want Joe Biden. I want, I want the whistleblower. I want, to, I want to also understand there may be additional people within the House Intelligence Committee that have had conversations with that whistleblower. I get anybody we want. By the way, if we get anybody we want, we'll be here for a very long time. Question from Senator Johnson for the President's Council. If House managers were certain it would take months to litigate a subpoena for John Bolton, why shouldn't the Senate assume lengthy litigation and make the same decision as the House made, reject a subpoena for John Bolton? Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, I, I think that's precisely the point. And the fact is that if, in fact, we were, are to go down that road of a witness or witnesses that had national, in, in the case of Ambassador Bolton, uh, high-ranking NSA, this is an individual that's giving president, the president advice at the highest level. I think we can all see what's going on here, and that is if the House wants to call witnesses, if you want to hear from a single witness, if you want to hear what John Bolton has to say, we are going to make this endless. We, the president's lawyers, are going to make this endless. We promise you. We're going to want Adam Schiff to testify. We're going to want Joe Biden to testify. We're going to want Hunter Biden. We're going to want the whistleblower. We're going to want everyone in the world. If you dare, if you have the, the, the unmitigated temerity to want witnesses in a trial, we will make you pay for it with endless delay. The Senate will never be able to go back to its business. That's their argument. How dare the House assume there will be witnesses in a trial? Shouldn't the House have known when they undertook its investigation that the Senate was never going to allow witnesses? That this would be the first impeachment trial in the history of the Republic with no witnesses? So Mr. Sekulow wants me to testify. I'd like Mr. Sekulow to testify about his contacts with Mr. Parnas or Mr. Cipollone about the efforts to implement the President's fight on all subpoenas. I'd like to ask questions about, well, I'd like to ask questions of the President and put him under oath. But we're not here to indulge in fantasy or distraction. We're here to talk about people with pertinent and probative evidence. And you know something? I trust the man behind me sitting way up who I can't see right now. But I trust him to make decisions about whether a witness is material or not, whether it's appropriate to out a whistleblower or not, whether, to, whether a particular passage in a document is privileged or not. It's not going to take months of litigation, although that's what the President's counsel is threatening. The House Judiciary Committee report accompanying the articles of impeachment asserted the President committed criminal bribery as defined in 18 U.S.C. Section 201 and honest services fraud as defined in 18 U.S.C. Section 1346, but these offenses are not cited in the articles of impeachment. Did the President's actions as alleged in the articles of impeachment constitute violations of these federal criminal laws, and if so, why were they not included in the articles? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and thank the Senator for her question. Uh, Article 1 alleges corrupt 
abuse of power. Corrupt abuse of power connected to the President's effort to try to cheat in the 2020 election by pressuring Ukraine to target an American citizen, Joe Biden, solely for personal and political gain. And then to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 election. And the scheme was executed in a variety of ways. Now, Professor Dershowitz has indicated, based on his theory of what is impeachable, that it has to either be a technical criminal violation, though the weight of constitutional authority says the contrary, but he said that it should be something that is either a criminal violation or something akin to a criminal violation. Akin to a criminal violation. And what we allege in Article 1 falls into that category. Because what happened here is that President Trump solicited a thing of value in exchange for an official act. The thing of value was phony political dirt in the form of an investigation sought against Joe Biden, his political opponent. And he asked for it explicitly. The question from Senator Sinema to the President's counsel is this. The administration notified Congress of the hold of Northern Triangle Countries funds in March 2019, announced its decision to withhold aid to Afghanistan in September 2019, and worked with Congress for months in 2018 regarding funds being withheld due to Pakistan's lack of progress meeting its counterterrorism responsibilities. In these instances, the, re <coughs> excuse me, the receiving countries knew the funds were being withheld to change behavior and further publicly stated American policy. Why, when the administration withheld the Ukrainian security assistance, did it not notify Congress or make Ukraine or partner countries publicly aware of the hold and the steps needed to resolve the hold? Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, I think that in all of those instances that were listed in the question, it was clear that withholding the aid was meant to send a signal. It was done publicly, and it was meant to send a signal to the country. I, I think that in the testimony before the House here, Ambassador Volcker made clear that he and others hoped that the hold would not become public because they did not want there to be any signal to the Ukrainians or to others. The question was asked, why didn't we charge bribery? And the answer is we could have charged bribery. In fact, we outlined the facts that constitute bribery in the article. But abuse of power is the highest crime. The framers had that in mind as the highest crime. The facts we alleged within that do constitute bribery. But had we charged bribery within the abuse of power article, I can assure you the council here would be arguing you have charged two offenses within the same article. That makes that invalid. Now, they wouldn't have had Alan Dershowitz making that argument because he says abuse of power is not impeachable. They would have Jonathan Turley here making that argument. If we split them into two separate articles, one for abuse of power and one for bribery, they would have argued you have taken one crime and made it into two. 
The important constitutional point here is not that the acts within abuse of power constitute bribery, although they do. The important point is we charged a constitutional crime, the most serious crime. The founders gave the president enormous powers, and their most important consideration was that the president not abuse that power. And they provided a remedy, and that remedy is impeachment. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time.